0: Continue with the talk that we started with earlier, and that is the qualities of a perfect husband. The qualities of the perfect husband. So, before I go any further, um, who can reiterate to me the first three qualities that we covered so far? No. Uh, Strength. Strength. What what do we mean by strength? Uh, You said strength and character. Strength and character. And physical strength. And physical strength. Okay. Can you re- recall any hadith dealing with either one of those two? Um, the one when you mentioned the sister who complained about her husband. And she said that his, uh, his character was good, his knowledge and stuff was good, but he couldn't satisfy her. Okay. The hadith of the wife of uh, Thabit ibn Qais. Who came to the Prophet ﷺ to complain that her husband she had no problem with him regarding his deen or his character, but sexually he was not able to satisfy her. Okay? What else? The Prophet ﷺ was given the strength of forty men. Okay. Strength of character. What do we mean when we say strength of character? Person has a strong personality, strong character. You mentioned forgiveness, you Being able to forgive, what else? Anyone else? Being able to forgive Yeah Controlling himself when he becomes angry Good, mashaAllah Anything else? What about conviction? Conviction of faith Person being convinced in his faith Alright Okay, so strength What was the second one? Qualities of a perfect husband. Strength. What else? It was only three. Trust. Being trustworthy. Being trustworthy. And can you recall the hadith that I mentioned with that? When the Prophet ﷺ went to spend the night with Aisha. And he closed the door quietly, he took off his sandals quietly, he lay down quietly, pit, he got back up, put his sandals on quietly, walked out of the door quietly and she followed him, right? And then when she, you know, he, he came in and he saw her breathing hard, he asked her, you know, what's the problem? And then she exposed, you know, what her insecurity was and he combated or, you know, countered that insecurity with being transparent. Explaining to her what he was doing and why he was doing it. Right? And that helps to build trust. Okay. The third one was what? Third quality of the perfect husband. Perception. I'm sorry? Perception. Being perceptive. Being protective. As a husband, you should be able to uh, You should be able to read your wife. You should be able to read her. To know when she's angry and to know when she's happy. And to know the things that make her angry and make her happy, right? Because this helps you to navigate through your marriage. This helps you to um, have a pulse on your spouse and on your household in general, right? And I think that these things are, you know, very much attractive in a man, very much something that women look forward to having in a man. And it's something that if we don't have, we should be working towards having. Uh, So I'll end with these three inshallah ta'ala. And what was the hadith that I used for that one? Anyone recall that hadith? Yes. Yeah. Which one? It was, uh, I believe, you said that Rasulullah Sallallahu uh, uh, told Aisha that he knew her that, that when she's angry with him or when she's happy. With him. Right. With him. That the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam told Aisha, "I know when you're angry with me, and I know when you're pleased with me." Mm-hmm. Right. Which was a indication that he was watching her. That he observe certain things or character traits about her and patterns in her behavior so much so that he was able to determine when she was angry, when she was happy. Okay, cool. So, we're moving on to the next three, inshallah ta'ala. So, number four from the qualities of uh, a perfect husband is someone who has inshirah as-sadr. inshirah as-sadr means that someone who is accepting of People and what they have to offer. I have to offer. I think anyone, when they come into a marriage, they want to be accepted. They don't want to be judged because of the the flaws and the you know the mistakes that they have, and they want people to kind of accept them for who they are and not try to change them. Most of our frustration in our marriages happen as a result of trying to change something that we have absolutely no control over. We try to change something. That we have absolutely no control over. And we fail to change the things that we do have control over. There are things that we have control over that we don't change. Because we spend most of our time trying to change things that we have absolutely no control over. When the Prophet ﷺ said about the woman that she was created from the rib. And the most crooked part of the rib is the or the most curved part of the rib is the top part. He said, <laughs> He said that if you're going to draw benefit from the woman, you're going to draw benefit from her while she is curved, as she is. He said, and if you go to try to straighten her, you're going to break her. Showing you that as there are certain qualities about a woman, you have to leave her as she is without trying to change that. Without trying to, you know, your wife is not an extension of you right we we spend a lot of time trying to make our spouse more like me this marriage would work if you would just be like me if you would be more like me this marriage would be perfect right but the world doesn't need another you unfortunately right if two people are the same one of you are irrelevant the the world doesn't need another you your, your wife is not an extension of you stop trying to make her be like you leave her the way she is does that mean that you shouldn't encourage her to, to you know, correct certain character flaws that she has about her? Absolutely. The Prophet ﷺ did that with Aisha. He corrected her on, on many occasions. He didn't just leave her, but there were certain things about her that he did not try to change because he understood that that is part of her design as a woman. That is how she was, you know, that is how she was manufactured by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. All right. There was indications where he corrected her on certain things, like when she made the comment about Sophia. You know, she said to, she said to Sophia, you are the, the daughter of a Jew. Right. Sophia, she embraced the She took Islam, she, she took a shahada. She was a Jewish woman and embraced the And as it is amongst co-wives, sometimes they have these little cat fights. Right. And so Aisha said to Sophia one day. In the key, Ibn Atu, you are the daughter of a Jew. You're a Jewish daughter, right? So Sophia started crying and the Prophet, wa sallam, he walked in and saw Sophia crying and he took his two thumbs and he began to wipe the tears from her eyes. And he asked her, why are you crying? She said, because Aisha called me the daughter of a Jew. He said, Sophia, you are the daughter of a prophet you're the niece of a prophet and you marry to a prophet don't no woman has anything over you greater than that meaning you're the daughter of a prophet meaning Musa Musa was the prophet of Beni Israel not that Musa was her father but he was in you know in essence the father of Beni Israel because he was the prophet of the Jews he said you are the daughter of a prophet meaning Musa you are the niece of a prophet meaning Harun the brother of Musa and you are married to a Prophet, meaning me. So, what does any woman have over you that they can brag about? And then he went to Aisha, excuse me, Hafsa. It was Hafsa who said that to her. He went to Hafsa and he told her, Fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Fear Allah. Fear Allah. Itaqila. Don't, don't say things like that. He corrected Aisha. On one occasion, Aisha was describing Safiya. You know, they were, seemed like they were always picking on Safiya, right? She said about Sophia, she's short and chunky, short and thick. And the prophet said, Aisha, you know what? If the comment you made was mixed with the ocean and seven other oceans added to it, you would make all of the water in the ocean corrupt. Because it's it's backbiting. Even to describe or to motion with your hand that she's short and chunky, even to motion with your hand is, is, is still considered backbiting. So, you know, there were things about them that he corrected, but then there were things that he left um, and he just accepted that that's who she is. And he has to learn how to work around that. You are going to find if you're not married and if you are married as a man, you're going to find certain qualities about your spouse, about your wife that you are not going to be able to change. And you have to make peace with that. When you make the moment you reconcile within yourself that this is her, this is who she is, and I have to just embrace that, I have to accept that, your marriage will be a lot more smoother. But you're going to fight against that. For years, you're going to fight against it because you're thinking in your mind, I can just get her to change this one thing about herself. I can just get her to change this. Our marriage would be perfect. And then eventually you come to the realization that that is not going to change. That is who she is. That is who she is, and you have to learn how to accept that, and accepting something, accepting people for who they are, is called inshirah as-sadr. Just being open-hearted and being accepting of people as they are, without trying to change who they are. And I'll give you an example, on one occasion the Prophet ﷺ was with Aisha, and most of his companions knew that if you wanted to send him a gift, Right, to send send it to him while he's at Aisha's house. So on one occasion, his wife, Un Salama, she wanted to send him um, a plate full of food, sweets. And it could have been innocent or it could have been contrived. You know, you never sometimes you never know. Nonetheless, um, you are responsible for how you react and you are not responsible for what people do to you. Right? Life is 10% of what happens to you, 90% how you respond to it. You have no control over what people do, but you do have control over how you respond to what people do to you. And that is what you are accountable for. You're not accountable for what people do to you, but you are accountable for how you respond to other people. right? Because there are some responses that are just not warranted. An example of that is the, the Jews, the group of Jews who walked past the Prophet ﷺ one day and said, Assalamu alayk, may death be upon you. All right? Just think, you're sitting here with your wife, and a group of Jews walk past you, and instead of saying Assalamu alaikum, they say Assalamu alayk, which means death, may death be upon you. And the Prophet ﷺ said, Wa alaikum, and to you too. <laughs> and to you too. So Aisha got up and she started yelling, alaykum, May the curse of Allah be upon you. Wa wa kathir, and may the curse of Allah be upon you and the anger of Allah be upon you. And the Prophet ﷺ said, ya Aisha." He said, Aisha, relax. She said, Oh, Messenger of Allah, didn't you hear what they just said to you? He said, Yes. Didn't you hear what my reply was? That's not necessary. What you're doing right now is not necessary. He said, Aisha, in ab'ad nasi yawm al minhu, min That the, the people who have the worst station or the worst place with Allah on the Day of Judgment are people who other people run away from them fearing their bad character. That's, that's not necessary. He corrected that. But on this occasion, he didn't correct it. right? Because he understood that that was her dilemma. Everybody has something that they're struggling with. Everybody you come in contact with has something in their life that they're struggling with. It may not be your struggle because sometimes we become dismissive. Because if it's not my struggle, then we kind of just dismiss it. Like it's it's not it doesn't it's irrelevant. You need to get over that. But when it comes to your struggle, it's like oh well, I'm struggling. I'm, I'm that's my struggle. Okay. But what might be somebody else's struggle may not necessarily be yours, but it doesn't give you a, the right to dismiss anybody's struggle. right? You might not struggle with drugs and alcohol, but there might be somebody who does struggle with drugs and alcohol. That's their fitna. Everybody, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, has hand-designed fitna, trials and tribulations specifically for you. And that is to test you, and that is to test you over and over with those things to either make you a better person, or to break you by those things and then reward you because of your brokenness Yom al-qiyamah. The Prophet uh, uh, Sufiyana Thawri, one of the scholars of the Salaf, he said, Balaya, الْبَلَايَةِ Thawri, he said, if it wasn't for the trials and tribulations that Allah had given us in our lives, we would come on the day of judgment bankrupt with no good deeds. Some of us, the only good deeds we are going to have when we come al Qiyamah is because of the trials and tribulations that we had to endure in our lives. Bottom line. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants us to go to paradise. So when Allah wants good for us, he tests us. As the Prophet said, either it ibtalahum, that when Allah loves the people, He tests them. So if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants us to do good and wants us to be better, He's going to give us tests that are specific for us. Right, and the last thing you need with a test that is specific to you is for somebody to come and dismiss that and say, "Oh, that's not a fit." That you need to learn because we always got the solution, right? We got it all figured out. We always got the solution. Oh, brother, you're only struggling with that because you don't understand Tawheed. If you just understand Tawheed, then your life will just magically repair itself, right? Masha'allah, Tabarakallah. Who died and left you, my psychologist, to you know, look into my life and figure out that my biggest problem is that I don't understand Tawheed. MashaAllah Ta'ala. So you you know what my issue is, right? You you've made a, a a diagnosis of my problem, and my issue is I don't understand Tawheed. So all I gotta do is understand Tawheed and all my problems will just disappear, right? MashaAllah Ta'ala Kalah. Well Allah Allah, we need to stop, man. We need to stop, seriously, man. Because it's dismissive. It's dismissive of the human part of us. That we have certain struggles that we deal with. And it don't have nothing to do with understanding Tohid. It has nothing to do with not understanding Tohid. Because that is our solution for everything. Because we like to think that we have control over a situation. So we'll throw a solution like that. Well, if the people just got to understand Tohid. We just got to teach the people Tohid. Right? Because that makes you feel like you got the solution to the problem. That feeds your ego, that feeds your ego, and validates you. But in the process of validating yourself, you invalidate everybody else. And that's not fair. So on this occasion, Um Salama she sent some food to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And when Aisha saw the, the maid servant walk in with the plate of food, she walked over to the maidservant and she took her hand and she smacked the plate out of the maidservant's hand. The plate fell on the floor, broke into pieces, and the food was all over the floor. The Prophet ﷺ, what was his response to this? He smiled and he said, Gharat humكم. Yeah, Your mother's jealous again. <laughs> your mother's jealous again. Because this wasn't the first situation that Aisha re- reacted in a way that was inappropriate. But he understood that this is what it is. You're not going to change that. He didn't say, I stuck for the law. You need to fear Allah, law. You just broke her property. You know, he didn't respond like that because that was an aspect of her character that he accepted. That's what it is. That is what I'm dealing with. That is my trial. That is my fitna. Right? That is my trial. That is my fitna, that is what I'm dealing with, right? So instead of blaming her or condemning her for something that is her struggle, he just acknowledged that that's what it is, right? Your mother has become jealous again. And then he began to pick up the plate, the pieces of the plate, and put the food back on it. And he took one of Aisha's plates and he replaced the one that she broke. So he gave her the one that she broke and took one of her plates and gave it back to um to replace the one that she broke. And it shows us that if you break someone's property, even if it is an accident, you are responsible for replacing it. You are responsible for replacing it. So if you go outside and you accidentally bump somebody's car and their bumper falls off the car, simply getting out and saying, my bad, you know, subhanAllah. No, you are. You have to fix that. You, Islamically, you have to fix that. Because you destroyed my property, even if it was by accident. You still are responsible for fixing that. In Islam, even if you kill a Muslim by an accident, you are still responsible for paying his or her family blood money, even though it was an accident. You're still responsible. Compensation, that's part of our deen. All right, so the Prophet sallallahu was him, he picked up the plate, and he replaced the one that Aisha broke with one of Aisha's plates, and he didn't condemn Aisha for something that he knew was her struggle. She was a jealous woman. She was a jealous woman, and that's, and I mean, a lot of times, we'll throw that in a woman's face, and we'll say, oh, you're just jealous, as if something is wrong with that, (laughs) right? As my wife said to me, she said, the moment that I'm no longer jealous of you, you should be worried. If your wife is not jealous, you should be worried. And we'll say, oh, you're just jealous. As if that's something contemptible, like that's like that's something blameworthy. No, she's supposed to be jealous. Jealousy in Islam, and we tend to translate hased as jealousy. Hased is not jealousy. Hased is envy. That's something totally different. Jealousy is gheera. The word for jealousy is gheera. And it's also translated as being overprotective. Because jealousy is a fear. It is a fear of losing something that you believe is specifically for you or a fear of someone competing with you in something that you believe is specifically for you. There's nothing wrong with that. What, what, when, when does jealousy become a problem? When it causes you to transgress the boundaries against other people. That's when it becomes a problem. But simply being jealous, even for men... Because as men, we live in a society today where we pride ourselves on. I don't, I don't have jealousy issues. I'm not, You know, I'm not jealous. I'm secure in, in, in my manhood. Like, not being jealous over your wife does not make you any more of a man. It actually makes you less of a man. Right? They have a term for that in Arabic. It's called the youth. The youth is a man who doesn't have any jealousy, or doesn't have, is not overprotective. He lets his wife come outside any type of way she wants. She can wear what she wants. She can go where she wants. She can hang out with whoever she wants. We talking about men, the opposite sex, and you don't care. Your wife can hug other men, shake the hands of other men. You know, you know, this, this is okay, and you don't have a problem with that. And the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said that the, the youth will not enter into paradise. And the, the translation for the youth in English is a cockold. A cuckold is someone who has no backbone. So in Islam, even as men, we should have a level of jealousy with us as it relates to our wives, as it relates to our mothers, as it relates to our daughters. We should be jealous. Right, but that doesn't make you any more of a man. We gotta stop. We gotta be able to distinguish the standards that this society has set from the standards that Islam has set for us, and we live up to Islam standards and not the standards of the society that we live in. Because their society, their their standards are man made, and they fluctuate depending on circumstance and situation. Every day, their standards change. Islamic standards they don't change. They are what they are. Even the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was sitting with one of his companions, Saad, and Saad said, Wallahi <laughs> la He said, Wallahi, if I saw a man walking with my wife, I would strike him with my sword and not the flat part. Meaning I wouldn't hit him with this part, I would hit him with this part. And the Prophet ﷺ said, He said, Are you amazed at the jealousy of Sa'ad? He said, I swear by Allah I'm more jealous than he is. I'm more jealous than he is. He said, And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is more jealous than any of us when we go out and we transgress the boundaries that he has set. So, you know, jealousy is definitely something that is a characteristic that we should have as men uh, and definitely a characteristic that women should have. Um, but jealousy becomes a problem with the women when they utilize jealousy to make them transgress the boundaries that has been set. <laughs> so the Prophet Wasallam they were, and I mean, this wasn't the only quality about Aisha. He just accepted. He accepted that that's who she was and he didn't try to change that about her. When she became jealous, he just simply said, غَارَتْ Your mother's jealous again. You know, here we go again. But he never condemned her for it. He never blamed her for it. He accepted that that is who she is. And I think that people can function in a relationship better when they know that the other person is accepting of, they don't have to walk around on eggshells. Right? You heard, you hear that term all the time being used and I hear couples use that all the time. I feel like I'm walking on eggshells. Why does a person feel like they have to walk on eggshells because they know that a particular quality about them their spouse doesn't like and doesn't approve of. so they try as as much as they can to keep that quality you know tucked away somewhere but it always kinds of comes comes out and the moment it comes out the, the other spouse is always calling them on it and always drawing attention to it as opposed to just accepting that that's who the person is and we just need to learn how to navigate through uh, this relationship with those qualities. Number five, from the qualities of a perfect husband is someone who is not afraid to articulate how he feels to his spouse, right? And, and that's a big one for us, especially African-American men. We are probably at the top of the list of men who have a hard time expressing how we feel. We keep all of that stuff bottled up inside of us, and it comes out in other ways, right? And I'll tell you when we get very emotional, and when we start to articulate how we feel, when we go to jail, right? When you go to jail, you become the most sentimental individual that I have ever seen. We write in five, six, ten-page letters about how much you love and how much you're sorry, and you know, and then you know. But when you're on the other side of the fence. You know, it's this macho exterior, this, you know, this hard exterior, you know, but then when the moment you get behind bars, all of those emotions and feelings come out. And women, y'all y'all love that. Y'all love that. You get the letters. You still got the letters. You, you're not throwing them away. You cherish those letters because that's about the only time you can get the man to talk about how he feels. Right. Um. But we have to, in our marriages, man, we can't we can't function in our marriages on autopilot. Right? Marriages need emotion, feeling in order to right, in order to flourish. Right? Or we just on autopilot, and it's just like we live in like roommates together in the home. Nobody is expressing any feelings. You know, how many of you guys in here are married? Okay. Keep your hands up. How many of you that are married, you know. Don't have a problem telling your wife how much you love her and, you know. Okay, everybody. How many of you are not married? All right, out of the brothers that are not married, how many of y'all looking to get married? All right, because there's some brothers here that wasn't here earlier. All right, so come see me after this lecture is over. We're going to get you married today. (laughs) The Arabs, they have a say in ZawajikAllahu Bikran Bukra. May Allah marry you to a virgin tomorrow. <laughs> no, seriously, uh, see me after this is over. We have some sisters that we need to get married. So, not being afraid to articulate your feelings to your spouse. This is, this is very important, all right? In many instances, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam could be heard expressing how he feels about his wives more so Aisha because there was Aisha was a particular situation different from the rest of his wives. Aisha was the only woman who had never been married before. Every other woman he was married to had been married previously. Most of them had children. Most of them had lives prior to him. He married her straight from her father's house. She had no prior experience with you know being married. She had no children. You know what I mean? So can you imagine being the youngest out of all of his wives, the most immature out of all of his wives, the only one that didn't have any children? Right. So there was a lot of pressure on Aisha and the Prophet, knowing that he let her, you know, he kind of catered to her in a way that he didn't cater to the rest of his wives. And they accepted that they didn't have any qualms with that. They didn't make any issues with that because they know that everybody's situation is different and the way that he deals and sometimes women in polygyny don't understand that. They might see a man dealing with one wife one way and dealing with her another way and they consider that some form of injustice. When in fact it's from hikmah that everybody's situation is different. And it's no one size fits all method of dealing with women when you're in polygyny. Everybody's situation is different. Some women require more engagement and some women don't. Some women are a little more secure. They don't really need you to engage them like that. They're okay. And there's some women who are insecure that require 24 7, you know, reassurance and, you know, engagement. There's women who require that. All right? On um, well, one occasion, a man came to the Prophet وسلم, and said, Ya Rasulullah, man ahab bin nas Who is the most beloved people to you? Who do you love the most out of all of the people? And the Prophet, ﷺ asking for further clarification, he said, Amina Rijali, Amina Nisa. Do you mean from amongst the men or from amongst the women? They said, From amongst the women, who do you love the most? And the Prophet ﷺ said, Aisha. No, no issues with that. Who do you love most? He said, Aisha. They said, Well, what about the men? He said, Abuha, her father. I love Abu Bakr more than I love anybody. And I love his daughter more than I love any woman. And so, you know, her, when that gets back to her, they had a very small, tight-knit community. So when something happened, trust me, it got around. So when that gets back to Aisha, how do you think that that makes her feel? That he's telling people, strangers, out and about how much he loves his wife, right? And there's, there's, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, there was another situation where Aisha actually made the Prophet Wasallam confront these feelings, the Prophet ﷺ One day he was with Aisha And as she used to always do She would always ask questions Right? And she would always make him dig deep She was the type of woman That didn't allow him To just deal with her on the surface You gotta go deeper When you're dealing with me You're not gonna give me the surface You're gonna go deeper with me So she asked the Prophet ﷺ On one occasion She said Ya Rasulullah كيف حبك Li? How much do you love me? How much do you love me? If your wife was to ask you that now, how do you respond to that without sounding so corny and cliche-ish? <laughs> well, you know, my love for you is like deeper than the ocean. Like, come on, dude. <laughs> That's so corny. It's, it's so cliche. How do you respond to that in a way that reassures your wife that you actually feel like that about her? She asked him, li, how much do you love me? And the Prophet ﷺ, he said, I love you like a rope with a knot tied in it. He's giving her a metaphor. It's, it's analogous because in the Arabic language, that was always seen as a sign of eloquence. You know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses these analogies all in the Qur'an. All throughout the Qur'an, you'll find analogies used with this and with that. Because this was seen to the Arabs in Arab custom and tradition. It was seen as a sign of eloquence. Like when Aisha asked the Prophet, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, a messenger of Allah, if we settled in a valley and there was a tree that had not been eaten from, and a tree that had been eaten from, which tree would you allow your camel to graze around? Right? She's using an analogy, right? But she's going somewhere with this. And the Prophet, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, because he understood the language, he understood the culture, he was able to see exactly where she's going with this. So he said, I will allow my, my camel to graze around a tree that had not been eaten from. You can't get me with that. Come on. That's too easy. I do this with my eyes closed, man. He knew where she was going with that. Right. The most powerful speech is what the person is not saying. And this is this is a this is a skill that many of us have yet to acquire. And that is listening to what someone is not saying, because sometimes what a person is not saying is even more important than what they are saying. We call it reading in between the lines. So if your wife said to you, if we settled in a valley and there were two trees in the valley, there was a tree that had been eaten from, meaning it had fruits on it and it had been eaten from, and then there was a tree that had fruits on it that had not been eaten from, which tree would you let your camel graze around? You know where she's going with this. And the prophet so to us, said, I would allow my camel to graze around the tree that had not been eaten from. She said, yeah, that tree is me. I'm the only wife that you have that has never been touched by another man. Every other wife you've been married to has been married to another man except me. The Prophet, what did he how did he respond today? He just smiled and walked away. Right? I'll deal with that battle another day. Not today, Shaitan. <laughs> not today. Sometimes we have to tell ourselves that. Shaitan, not today. You're not gonna win today. Right? So the, the point that I'm making is that it was from Arabic, you know, Arab custom and tradition to use metaphors and analogies when speaking because that was seen as a form of eloquence. So she said, Kaifa um, How much do you love me? And the Prophet ﷺ said, I love you like a rope that has a knot tied in it. So if I, if I didn't say any more, because Aisha actually, she knew what he meant by that. So I'm asking you As um, me and Abdul-Hakim was talking last night about understanding the Arabic language and understanding the Arab culture because when we mention hadith like this we have to go into a long soliloquy to explain what it actually means simply because many of us don't know the language and are not familiar with the culture so then we have to you know, do a great deal of explanation. What did he mean by that? If his wife said to him how much do you love me? And he said I love you like a rope that has a knot in it what does he mean? What what does the metaphor represent? If you had to take a shot, strong, huh? Strong. My, meaning, my love for you is strong. How how'd you get that from uh, the the rope with a knot tied in it? Because um, the knot will be hard to come out. More pressure you put on the knot, it, it won't let go. Mashallah, good. You're absolutely right. They say the intelligent person, the the intelligent person, all you got to do is indicate. They they automatically get it. You don't have to go into a whole you know soliloquy to explain. They get it. Intelligent people, they get it, right? That's exactly what it means. When you tie a knot in a rope, the knot is tight and it's strong, right? So Aisha, knowing what that meant, she said to him, "What for uktah?" She said, and how tight is the knot? How tight is the knot in the rope? (laughs) She went further. I told you she was the type of woman that would not allow him to just deal with her on the surface. Each and every time, if you look at his interaction with her, each and every time she made him go deep. You're going to go deep. You're not going to just deal with me on the surface. Right. So she asked him, how tight is the knot? You've been married to me all these years, like has the knot loosened a little bit? Like is it as tight as it was from the beginning? Like how is the knot now? And he said, <laughs> He said the, the, the knot in the rope is just as it was from the day it was tied. Never, you know, never loosened. And she said to him, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, La ubali bil mawt muntu an araftu She said, I've never cared about death from the moment I realized that you were going to be my husband in paradise. Death never mattered to me anymore from the moment I realized that you was going to be my husband in paradise. La ilaha illallah. Shakespeare couldn't have written anything more poetic than that. Their conversations was just so deep, man. When you just reflect on the dialogue, right? And even in the Quran, when you reflect on the dialogue, you just replay the conversation in your head over and over and over. You can just sometimes you put yourself right there in the middle of the conversation in that dialogue. You know, and that was a real moment for her. She wanted him to engage her. You know, and sometimes we don't understand that. Sometimes as men, we might come home from work. We got a ton of things on our minds and your wife wants you to engage her. She doesn't want a solution to the problem. She wants you to listen to her, engage her. Right. Sometimes, you know, people are not looking for solutions. Men, we are proverbial problem solvers. We got the solution to everything. Everything. We got the solution. Sometimes women don't want the solution. They just want you. They want your undivided attention. I want you to just listen, you know, and that's, you know, a quality about the Prophet Wasallam that he had that definitely set him aside from other men. The last quality, and I'm going to mention, inshallah ta'ala, we'll end here, and if there's any questions or whatever, we'll try to take some time to address those. Um, number six, from the qualities of a perfect husband, and of course, I would be remiss if I didn't say this, and that is the quality of being able to navigate your way around the religion and I don't notice I didn't say intelligent or smart about the Dean being able to navigate your way around the religion meaning you are knowledgeable of your Dean and you practice it knowledgeable and you practice it right and I think that this is probably the most if I can use it just using colloquial terms this being knowledgeable about your deen is definitely a quality that is attractive it's attractive when a woman sees a man who knows his religion not necessarily in theory but in practice as well knows familiar with his deen he knows how to navigate his way around the religion you know and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentioned in the story of Ismail and surah Maryam Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says fil isma'il and mentioned in the book Or in the story of Ismail she, He said <laughs> Kana That he used to command his family With the salah And command his family with zakat And he was pleased With his Lord uh, His Lord was pleased with him right? And this is one of the two places That the word is mentioned in the Quran Which by the way, I don't know if you guys knew that I had a, 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 a online TV show, a program called The Maradiyah Show. If you just go to YouTube and you type in The Maradiyah Show, you'll see all of the episodes that come up, uh, inshallah wa ta'ala. Um, but this is where I got the word from, Maradiyah, meaning someone who is pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, um, But notice Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala praised him or mentioned this quality about him that he used to command his family with the salah, command his family with the salah, right? Because there's nothing that is more important to a man after his family's belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala than their practice of the religion. And that starts with the prayer, the most important pillar of Islam after the shahada. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commands us in the Quran to what uh, to command your family with the prayer alayha and be patient and be diligent in doing it you know even the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam when he married his daughter Fatima off right because sometimes we might marry our daughters off and we think that khalas, my job is done i married her off don't come back home you know enjoy the rest of your life your job is not over you are still the woman's wali You are still responsible To make sure that the, the characteristics and the acts of worship That you instilled in her When she was in her, in your home That she maintains those things in her life The Prophet ﷺ went to go visit Fatima and Ali One night And he got he sat on the bed With Ali and Fatima And he asked them ala tukumu, ala tukumu leila, Don't you guys get up and pray at night He went to visit Fatima and Ali. This was his daughter and his son-in-law. And he said to Ali and Fatima, he said, you guys don't get up and pray at night? So Ali responded with the typical response of a young man. Here we go again. You got all the answers, right? Got it all figured out. So Ali says, Our souls are in the hands of Allah. If Allah wills for us to get up at night, we get up. If He don't, then we don't get up. (laughs) The Prophet Wasallam. he dusted his leg off. And he got up and walked away, shaking his head, and he said, Well can The human being is the most argumentative of creatures. Just get up and pray. I didn't ask you for this whole dialogue about whether Allah gets you up or not. Just get up and pray. I didn't ask you all of that. Right? But this is the young boy. You you got all the answers, you got the dean all figured out, mashallah, you sat in a couple of classes, you understand the qadr, you got you got all the answers, right? MashaAllah Ta'Barakallah. But the thing that you're missing out on is the practice. The thing you're missing out on is the practice. Got all the answers, you got all the theoretics down. Got all the book knowledge down. But the practice of the deen is something totally different. One of of Imam Ahmed, one of his students came to stay with him at night. And Imam Ahmed left him a, a cup of water. Left him a cup of water. And in the morning, when Imam Ahmed went to go get him up for Salatul Fajr, he noticed that the cup was still had water in it. So he asked the student, he said, Why didn't you use the water last night? He said, Because I wasn't thirsty. Imam Ahmed said, I didn't leave you the cup of water for you to drink. I left you the cup of water for you to make wudu and get up at night and pray to Hajj. He said, How are you a student of knowledge? you a student of knowledge and you don't have a portion of the night that you get up and pray? MashaAllah, but you a student of knowledge. If you're a student of knowledge, then that should be reflected in your practice of the dean. Uh, And I recall like being in Saudi Arabia and, you know, some of the scholars, you know, when they would have like some of the students in, in certain circles or whatever, in personal circles, we would go to some of the scholars' houses and we would sit with them and learn with them. And sometimes they would kind of admonish us, especially the American students, right? The American students. They were, they were really fond of the American students because most of us were converts to Islam. And, you know, for them, they, they, most of them have never been outside of Saudi Arabia. So to come in contact with someone who used to be a Christian or used to be someone else and converted to Islam, they are literally amazed, amazed. And one of the things that I recall that some of the scholars used to say is that why do we see you guys being so diligent about seeking knowledge, but your practice of the religion is not reflected in that? It's not reflected in your practice of Islam. You do all of this study and reading all day long and you don't get up at night to pray Chahajar. There were African students who used to take the Maliki position that because they are students in the university and they, and mind you, we're in the university from September to June, right? They used to consider themselves travelers. So they used to shorten their prayer and combine their prayer for the whole eight, nine months they was in the university. They used to consider themselves travelers. Many of them wouldn't even come to the prophet's masjid, which is where all of the durus all of the lectures and lessons used to go on after school. Everybody knows that you go to the prophet's masjid, there's scholars all over the masjid with their little circles here, 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 here teaching different aspects of the deen. You go and you sit with a scholar and you, you learn a particular science. And some of them wouldn't even come to the haram to pray. And praying in the Prophet's Masjid is worth a thousand salat. Every time you pray, even your sunnah prayers, worth a thousand prayers, a thousand salat. For one salat, for one prayer, is equivalent to a thousand salat, even your sunnah prayers. And they would pray on the campus. They would not come to the Prophet's Masjid and pray. How are you here for nine months? The Prophet's Masjid is literally, you know, walking distance from the university. And you would opt to pray on the university campus, on the Masjid that's on the campus, as opposed to walking to the Prophet's Masjid to go pray and get the thousand salat for every salat you pray. SubhanAllah al But you're a student of knowledge. You're sitting here studying for nine months, studying the religion, but yet and still it's not reflected in your practice of Islam. And, you know, and American students, we are no different. We're no different. You find brothers hanging out at McDonald's and sitting back and having their own little lectures and halakas inside of McDonald's instead of going sitting with the scholars benefiting. Your time there is very limited and your time goes by very quickly there. It seemed like I just got there and I graduated in 2007. I can remember the day I got there, what I had on, where I was at, everything like it was just yesterday. And that's, you know, that's the double-edged sword of being in Medina. So the point that I'm making is that, you know, having a husband who has knowledge of the deen is one thing. Having a husband who has little knowledge of the deen but he acts upon the little bit that he knows is far greater than having someone who's memorized the whole Qur'an, knows al Bukhari, knows Muslim, know this, knows that, but yet and still his practice of the deen is very weak. And the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi said That the strong believer is better and more beloved to Allah than the weak believer Even though in both of them is good In both of them there's virtue But make no mistake about it The strong believer is better and more beloved to Allah subhanahu wa taala than the weak believer So Number six, from the qualities of a perfect husband is someone who knows his way around the religion, knowledgeable of his deen, is able to teach his wife the religion by not necessarily teaching her verbally or through, you know, theoretically, but teaching her through his practice of the religion. I'll give you an example of how sometimes sisters overlook these type of brothers. right? Overlook these type of brothers because you're not concerned with how much the brother knows about the deen. You're concerned with how handsome he is, you're concerned with how much money he makes, but very little concern with how much of the deen he can teach you. Zainab, Zainab, who was the wife of the Prophet Sallallahu but she was married before she was married to the Prophet Sallallahu she was married to Zayd ibn Haritha prior to her marrying the Prophet Sallallahu Listen to her story. Zainab, she said, Khatabani إدت min Quraysh she said that a number of men proposed to me from Quraysh, you know, from elite, from the upper echelons of society. you know these, you know, come from, you know, privilege, right? they they proposed to me. so I sent my sister to the prophet صلى الله so that I could take counsel with him to decide which one of these men I'm going to marry. So when the sister of Zaynah got to the Prophet ﷺ and told her, the Prophet ﷺ said to her, he said, وَمَا لَهَا كِتَابَ رَبِّهَا وَسُنَّةَ النَّبِيِّهَا وَمَنْ هُوَ سُبْحَانَ اللَّهُ إِبْنَ تَعَمَّتِكْ Absolutely. The Prophet ﷺ, as he's talking to Zainab's sister He said, what is wrong with Zainab that she won't marry someone That's going to teach her the book of her Lord and the sunnah of her prophet Why is she worried about all of these men from Quraysh and none of them know deen Why not marry somebody who's going to teach her her religion Teach her the book of her Lord and the sunnah of her prophet So the sister of Zainab said, well who are you referring to the Prophet said, Zayd ibn Hadith. She said, You would marry your cousin? Because that Zainab was the cousin of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. She said, You would marry your cousin to your slave? The Prophet said, Absolutely. Because aside from the fact that he was an ex-slave, right, he knows the deen better than anybody. So <laughs> you can say what you want to say. Right? And that was one of the things that set people aside, that is the equalizer in this Dean and that's knowledge. You may not have more money than somebody. You may not look as good as somebody. You may not have the status of someone, but Dean, but knowledge of this Dean is the grand equalizer in this religion. One of the scholars of the um I'm forgetting his name. No, not at all. Uh, Muhammad ibn Sireen. Muhammad ibn Sireen was one of the scholars of the Tabi'un, but he was also a slave. His mother was a slave and his father was a slave. His mother was a slave that used to be owned by Abu Bakr, and Abu Bakr freed her eventually. And his father was a slave who used to belong to Anas ibn Malik. And those two were freed, and they got married, and they produced a child, and his name was Muhammad ibn Musaiddin. He's famously known for his statement in the "Indeed, this religion, this knowledge, is the religion. So let every one of you look at who you take your religion from." That's Muhammad ibn Musaiddin, right? Muhammad ibn Musaiddin, his mother, when she was freed as a slave, she had a deep conversation with her son. She said, fi illa mink, She said, Oh my son, in most circles you are going to find yourself the laughing stock. People are going to laugh at you, people are going to make jokes about you because you used to be a slave, your, your parents were slaves. She said, but seek knowledge of this deen and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will raise you. doesn't matter where you come from. Knowledge of this deen is the equalizer. It will make everybody equal. So on this one occasion, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi said to Zaynab, her, her sister, why don't Zaynab marry somebody that's going to teach her the book of her Lord and the sunnah of her prophet? So she said, well, who are you referring to? He said, Zayd ibn Harithah. So she said, You will marry your daughter? You will marry your, your cousin to your slave? He said, Absolutely. Absolutely. And eventually Zaynab married him and, you know, she caused a lot of problems in his life, made his life, you know, miserable as heck. And then eventually, you know, he divorced her and the Prophet eventually married her. The point that I'm making is that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam used Zaid Ibn Harithah, regardless of what he was and where he came from, as someone that she should have married because he's going to teach her hadith. Another example, and this will be the last one, hadith found in Sahih bukhari in the chapter of marriage. جاءت المرأة إلى النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم فقال يا فنظر إليها النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم ثم رأسه فقام رجل فقال يا رسول الله زوجني إياها فقال النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم وما عندك قال ما عندي شيء قال فبحث عن شيء أو إلتمس شيء ولو من حديد. a woman walked up to the prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم and this wasn't the first time right this wasn't the first time there were at least four occasions where a woman walked up to the prophet and asked him you know does he have any desire for her to marry her right and actually imam bukhari mentions this hadith in the chapter of the permissibility of a woman proposing to a man right while today we would deem that as something that is totally inappropriate if a woman saw a brother and she had an attraction to him and she walked over to him and said you know with no disrespect you know here's my wali's number if you're interested in marriage could you give him a call we would say astaghfirullah a'udhu billah you have no shame right which is exactly what happened on this occasion because anas radhiyallahu ta'ala was standing there with his daughter when the woman walked up to the prophet sallallahu and asked him did he have any desire for her and Anis's daughter said a'udhu billah what little shame this woman has and anas turned to his daughter and said innaha Khayru minki That she's better than you at least she asked the prophet does he have any desire to marry her while you probably feel the same way but you would never open your mouth to ask (laughs) right (laughs) so um, the prophet looked the woman up and down and then he dropped his head as an indication that he was not interested he was not interested right showing you the permissibility of looking at the woman prior to marrying her, and of course looking at her is looking at what normally shows, her face and her hands, that's it. No asking the woman to take off her overgarment to see what she looked like, to see what she working with. Wallahu al is haram, haram, haram. And any woman who removes the shield that Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala has given you to allow a man to see what you look like underneath, then you deserve exactly what you get. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala crowned you with the hijab. Your hijab is a crown, you're a queen. And you remove that crown to allow some man, some random to look at you because he wants to satisfy his own desires and you get everything you deserve for that. So the Prophet sallallahu wa sallam, looked the woman up and down and then he lowered his head as an indication that he wasn't interested. So another man jumped up and said, oh messenger of Allah, if you have no desire for her, then marry her to me. <laughs> The prophet said, okay, what do you have? But the point that I'm making here, look at how simple marriage was for them. It was real simple, which is why I said right now, how many of you in here looking to get married? Some of y'all were probably looking at me like, yo, this dude is crazy. Like, what's in the water in Philly? That's that's where you came from, you came from Philly? I'm not from Philly, all right? But me and Philly have a love-hate relationship. <laughs> But the point that I'm making is that it's like we sometimes we go overboard in, 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 our, in our understanding of the religion and our practice of the deen. The deen was real simple during the time of the Prophet. Salah, telling, we complicate the religion. It doesn't have to be that complicated. If there's someone here that's looking to get married, there's a sister looking to get married. Why we can't just make that connection? If y'all have something in common, you have, you know, you want to start this process and, you know, we're there to assist you with that. But when we don't open doors or we don't create situations where we feel comfortable, where we can do that, then we resort, we find people resorting to measures that are haram. And we share in that because we didn't create a situation where they could have avoided the haram altogether. Our children shouldn't have to meet up at certain places to meet with each other. They should feel comfortable coming to their place of worship, being able to come to their imam, being able to express their desire for marriage and have the imam right there on the spot say, you know what, I know a brother right here. Uh, Brother, what's your name? Ain't you looking to get married? Uh, Let me make this connection right here. The man stood up and said, oh, Messenger of Allah, if you have no desire to marry her, marry her to me. The Prophet said, okay, but what do you have? What do you have? He said, I don't have anything. The Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi said, go find something, even if it's a ring made of iron. I don't care. Go find something. Right. Which is when I was the Imam, don't come to me telling me that you're interested in marriage. The first thing I'm going to ask you is where you work. Where do you work? And I don't care how much you make. But the fact that you get up every day and you go to work, you're consistent with that. It shows a discipline. That people who sit on the couch and do nothing all day and still worrying about um, when the mad shit going to get me married, you know, no, no. The prophet told him it wasn't the value that he was looking for. It was just something. You got to bring something to the table. I don't care what it is. Because at the end of the day, if you work at Walmart, it's not my job to say you make enough or you don't make enough. It's the woman's responsibility who's going to marry you to say, that's cool with me. I don't really have a problem with that. That's not an issue. Or it is an issue that's not going to work for me. That's her her decision, not mine. But it is my responsibility to make sure that you're bringing something to the table. So the Prophet told him, go find a ring, even if it's something made of iron. It, it, you know, it, it doesn't matter, insignificant, but bring something to the table. So the man went and he asked his family, no one had anything, so he came back and he said, I don't have anything. So the Prophet sallallahu he didn't just leave it at that. You know, when people are in a situation, like if he jumped up and said, marry her to me, that's an indication that he's, you know, we need to get this guy married. And telling the person to be patient, right, it's not going to solve the problem. La yusminu wa la min It's not going to work. So the Prophet sallallahu asked them, How much of the Qur'an do you know? He said, I know surah such and such and surah such and such and surah such and such. The Prophet sallallahu said, Then I marry you to her for what you possess of the Qur'an. Because what is he bringing to the table? And he bringing knowledge to the table. I may the woman to the man for what he possessed of the Qur'an. Meaning not that he's coming in knowledgeable and that she just got a knowledgeable husband. No, her dowry was those surahs that you know from the Qur'an, you are going to teach her those surahs, and that is her dowry. And I mean, if we could only practice that today with all of these students and knowledge, right? You memorize the 40 hadith of Imam an and you're going to marry, you're going to teach her 40 hadith. And we're going to set aside a certain a window to teach you those 40 hadith to make sure that's her dowry. You know, not that you're just marrying a brother because he's knowledgeable, but he don't share none of his knowledge with you, right? No. I marry you to her based upon what you possess of the Quran, meaning the surahs that you know from the Quran, you're going to teach her those surahs. That is her dowry. And I'm going to end with this. I remember reading a story just recently of a sister who, um, a brother wanted to marry her so bad. And her father was like an imam. Um, Arab couple. Her father was an Imam. And the father was Hafiz Quran. And the woman said, you know, the father said, okay, I'll marry you to my daughter. But the dowry that you have to give my daughter is that you have to memorize the Quran and you have to teach it to her. The whole Quran. So the sister said that he had a large portion of the Quran already memorized. And it took him, I think, about a year or two to finish the whole Quran. And, you know, the whole while she says, like, she's just continuously encouraging him. Please, like, you know, if we want to get married, that my father said that the stipulation is that you had to memorize the whole Quran. Think about this right now. If a man came to you to marry your daughter right now and you told the man, I'll marry you, my daughter, but you got to go and memorize the whole Quran before I give it to you. Do you really think that he would be that committed to go memorize the whole Quran to marry your daughter? Absolutely not. He gonna go and say, all right, man, may Allah bless your daughter, and I'm gonna stick with the kuhu, Allah, I, I know, and I'm gonna marry somebody else. No, I'm serious. But that takes discipline, and that's what we don't have. We don't have that level of discipline. And I mean, the fact that he went and it took him a couple of years to memorize the whole Quran, and she waited for him. She waited. She waited for him. But that, look at that discipline. And it shows that he really wanted to be married to her. While well, we, 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 you know, we sell our daughters off for nothing, man. We don't make people work for anything. And when people don't have to work for anything, they don't put value on it. And sisters, you make it so easy for the brothers. You either go too, too extreme or you just, you undervalue yourself completely. We have to find that middle course. You know, we're not giving the sisters away for free. You, you are going to work for that. All right. But at the same token, we're not gonna make it such a task or such a challenge that the brothers and sisters give up on getting married altogether and just resort to measures that are haram. And so this is what I wanted to present in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Uh, I don't know if there were any questions or comments about what was presented. You guys are a good bunch, man. You don't ever ask any questions. <laughs> I Actually, I like that because that means one of two things. Either you're too shy and you don't want to ask and that's your loss. Or um, it was completely clear to you and you don't need to ask any questions, which is an excellent thing. Yes, brother. and then the prophet got married to you. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I got it. <you. laughs> well, well, go ahead. Finish. Because what?